what a great day for us to be together as the Christ Journey family once again, not only in South Florida, Gables Campus, Kendall Campus, but across the nation, around the world, wherever you're making your connection with us today, we ask God's blessing for you. And I would like for all of us to take a deep breath, and would you repeat after me, nothing is too hard for God. Okay, let's turn the volume up to 11 now and try it one more time. Nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is too hard for God. Amen. We're feeling that. We're reminding ourselves of that today, not only in our worship, but in our word. And we're very happy to welcome you on the second time of our togetherness in the Explore God series, where we're taking on seven big questions. And today's question is, is there a God? Does God exist? And uh, i got to tell you, I've asked this question. I've struggled with this. I've fought against it. And I have also sensed God's love, felt God's touch, and known his blessing in the way that makes me want to say, if this is a struggle in your journey right now, that I am praying God's blessing for you and love for you in the time that we're sharing together today. Especially if you're a guest with us, maybe this is your first time with us, you responded to somebody's invitation to be part of the Explore God experiment with us at this time, and uh, can I tell you that you honor us with your presence, I am so thankful for you to be here, and thankful for you to bring your intellect into the filter of what we're trying to understand here, and praying God's blessing upon you in a way that would uh, resonate with something within um, especially if you have been somebody who ruminates on questions like, does God exist? Is there a God? I heard Dr. Francis Collins speak some time ago, a genetic scientist, physician who led the Human Genome Project, which you know was the mapping of the human genetic blueprint. And he said at that time that a recent survey shows that 40%, 4 out of 10 working scientists today, believe in a God to whom one may pray in expectation of an answer. Forty percent of working scientists believe in a God to whom one may pray in expectation of an answer. He uh, told at that time how he was raised by unconventional, free-thinking parents who, uh, who greatly valued learning, literature, music, the arts, but really didn't have a place in their lives for religion. And uh, it wasn't important to them. And then, then he said, as a teenager, how he fell in love with science to the point that um, he slipped into a worldview that assumed that the only true meaning in the universe was to be found in mathematics and physical laws. And then as a result, he found himself an agnostic and then ultimately an atheist. And then his scientific curiosity um, took him to the field of medicine. And in that field, he said, in dealing with dying patients, he had occasion to meet many who had a vibrant faith in God, in Jesus. And one of them in particular, in sharing her faith with him, just asked, doctor, what do you believe? And he said at the time, it was a very troubling, unsettling question for him for some reason. And it led him to take his scientific desire to make decisions based on evidence into the field of faith research, something he'd never done. Really consider the evidence for 
and against faith. First time he'd ever thought about doing that. Now, there's no way to put God into a test tube. That's not what he's talking about. But there are evidences that we can explore in answering the question. Reasons that bear witness and can counter doubt and compel trust. So what we want to do today is just quickly call four witnesses to the stand. The first one that we would call is existence itself. Why is there something rather than nothing? This is a fact that invites us to see that God exists. Now, in philosophy, it's called the cosmological argument. And it claims this, that the very fact that things exist, plants, animals, the sun, raises the question, why? Why? What is the sufficient reason for being? I mean, suppose that nothing existed. Would, we require, would nothing require an explanation? Would the non-existence of the cosmos require a reason? No. But as soon as something exists, we ask, why? What is the sufficient reason for its existence? And then this, in turn, philosophers say, bring us to, introduce us to the principle of contingency. Contingency means that everything exists, everything that exists appears to be contingent which means dependent upon something else for its existence. Like plants need water, animals need food, everything needs the sun, and the list goes on. So we observe through careful study that no thing is utterly independent, self-caused or self-sufficient. This is the principle of contingency. In fact, it, clear, it seems clear to us by science that all that is in this world did not exist at one time and probably will not go on existing forever. The second law of thermodynamics says that everything in our universe is in a gradual state of entropy and disintegrating. Look in the mirror is proof for me. This fact, I can still remember the day that I looked at myself and said, what have you done to my friend Bill? Where did he go? But this fact brings us into the third notion in the evidence where we ask the big question. Here's the big question. If, in fact, all that exists is contingent and disintegrating and disappearing, as far as we know, then what is the explanation for all these contingent and disintegrating things? That's the issue. That's the question, right? So if you pull yourself out of the universe of all that is, and then you draw an imaginary circle around it and say all that is exists in that circle, all worlds, all galaxies, everything in them, all that exists in the universe inside the circle, and then as we have concluded, it exists contingently dependent upon something else within the circle for its existence, and then uh, we pull ourselves out. Now, I know it kind of feels like we're entering the twilight zone here, so stay with me for a second. The question is, what is the most reasonable answer to the question? What caused all the contingent objects and beings inside the circle to exist in the first place? I've struggled with this question. If you stop to ask it, you eventually will as well and try to figure it out. And there are only two logical possible explanations. If you come up with another one, let me know. 
either the ultimate cause of all that is has to be inside the circle or outside the circle, right? Okay, so which is the most reasonable answer to the question then? If everything inside the circle, by definition, is contingent and disintegrating, then how rational is it to locate the first cause of everything inside the circle? Where, by definition, no thing is independent, self-sustaining, or self-sufficient, self-caused. Does that really make the best sense to say, well, of course, the, it would be from inside the circle? Or wouldn't the highest probability be outside the circle, where by logical definition, whatever exists outside the circle is uh, non-contingent, absolutely self-caused, self-reliant, and utterly dependent, which, by the way, would also make it eternal, infinite, and the ultimate power in the universe. And suddenly we're talking in terms that people who throughout history have declared there is a God are calling God. Christians in particular. And what we've just seen is how the cosmological argument makes logical, rational sense, presenting evidence that leads us to the high probability that God exists outside the circle that we know as reality. Second witness we would call to the stand is called design. Why is everything that is, why is it so well-ordered, so precisely well-ordered in the nature of things? This is called the teleological argument. And as we reflect more closely we, on things that we see existing in our world, we observe that they are not only contingent, they're extremely complex in their design, in their order, in their structure. And that leads us once again to ask, why? Why? <laughs> What or who is responsible for the intricacies, the complexities, the symmetry, the orderliness, the, pur the purposefulness of all that we see around us and that we discover within us? Why? Does this purposeful, orderly design just happen by accident? Is it reasonable? to conclude that every single one of the sophisticated complexities and the varieties of the 8 million plus species of life we find on earth were the result of a chance haphazard explosion of random gases alone. And then if that's the case, then where did the mysterious floating gases come from? What's the mathematical probability of such a chance collision providing even one molecule, much less over billions of years, resulting in such a complex and wonder-filled universe as ours? This is the question that inquiring minds want to know. How does that happen? Why does it happen? How does that work? Philosopher William Paley, in the most famous statement of this argument, says it this way. There cannot be design without a designer. There cannot be contrivance without a contriver. There cannot be order without choice. Professor Edwin Carlston is a Princeton University biologist. I read, he says, the probability of life originating from accident is comparable to the probability of the unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing factory. 
the complexity, the symmetry, the design, the requirements. How reasonable is it to assume that if you took all the necessary parts, which you would already have, of a laptop computer, randomly placed them in your clothes dryer, set on high heat for tumble, and then with a timer in it to explode after a while, would that how reasonable would it be that the result would be your Mac with Bluetooth? You know, the order, the symmetry, the design, the purpose. This helps me in my struggle. Doesn't fully resolve it, but it helps me some. The point that teleology is trying to make is simply this. Complexity in order and design don't result from chaos, but from choice, from architects, from designers, from engineers. Scientist Sir Fred Hoyle, who's not a Christian, by the way, claims in his book, The Intelligent Universe, that the chances of any one of our body's 20,000 proteins having evolved by chance are roughly the same as the chances a blindfolded person has of solving Rubik's Cube, which he says is the odds are 50 quintillion to one. That's 50 followed by 18 zeros. Now, does that sound reasonable to you? That's the question we're asking. Is it reasonable? Are there reasons for... By the way, did you know that each one of the body's cells, 37 trillion plus cells, by recent estimates in the human body, every one of the body cells perform a series of complex functions, operations, as well as provide a storehouse of information itself, DNA research. Is that accidental? People are wanting to know. Whenever and wherever there is purpose, order, design, and structure, reasonable people seem to conclude that someone was responsible for it. In fact, one of the most famous atheist philosophers in Britain, UK, Anthony Flew, recently passed away, lifelong atheist, changed his mind late in life based on this reason, the DNA reason. Quote, biologists' investigation of DNA has shown by the utmost, by the almost unbelievable complexity of arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved. And then he goes on to say, my whole life has been guided by the principle, follow the evidence wherever it leads, a principle that Plato referred to in Socrates, and he says, I'm just following the evidence, and it's led me to God. So this argument at work, God is responsible for the amazing intricacies of this world. And that's the conclusion, by the way, that the Bible makes. Acts chapter 17, verse 24, God made the world and everything in it, one outside that's not contingent, designed and developed and ordered everything inside. Why? So that he gives all life, breath, and everything else. It's all evidence of an eternal, intelligent, all-powerful designer God. Next time you hold a baby in your arms, ask yourself, is uh, the wonder of creation, can it, the potential designing genius, be explained by any other way? Speaking of that, I've, you know, we have a recent addition to our church family, the little Bracho Noah. 
Noah Bracho, born Valentine's Day baby, eight pounds, four ounces, born to Rafa and Coco. Rafa leads us in worship here, which, by the way, Rafa has a background in science. I don't know if you know that. I think it's chemical, uh, chemistry degree. But, um, but we celebrate with them in the evidence of teleology that God has placed in their arms today. Third witness we would call to the stand is values. Values, conscience. Why do humans, why do we humans... Anthropologists have discovered this across history, have such a universal sense of right and wrong. This is called the moral argument, this urge to do right. Even when we disagree about how it's going to be interpreted, this this is still called the moral argument for the existence of God, the evidence of God. How do we account for the fact that human beings worldwide possess a kind of moral code internally that gives us this inner sense of oughtness? Like how the world ought to be different than what we've experienced. Where do values come from? Our preference for integrity and honesty over, or kindness over violence. Or, uh, you know, why do we care about the environment? About the plight of the homeless, about the under-resourced and poor. Why do we care about the abused? Why do we have this undeniable sense of moral outrage when we see the innocent suffer? Where does that come from? Why does it matter? If we are simply the compilation of gases that now are accidental tourists on this minuscule globe that are, that are simply floating through time until we are no more, then where does the sense of right and wrong come from? This moral accountability, the outrage that drives so much anger. Can random gases or deterministic genes create a code of values, and then make sure that they are planted in every human heart across time. Now, this is the question that that the argument is raising. Or is it learned social conditioning, just a matter of external control? Okay, if it is, then why is it that some continue to break through their learned conditioning and balk at the status quo of learned racism, sexism, and, uh, and other prejudices? Where do those values come from? Isn't it possible, even highly probable, the moral argument would say, that this is evidence to be considered of a higher moral truth, a standard reflected in the character of a universal and supreme moral being? If not, then how do you explain it? If you even dare to engage the question, the conversation, this is where it takes us. When you start thinking, why? Why are we like that? Is it just in our genes? Where did those come from? The designer? You got designer genes? Well then, who's the designer? And where did he come up with this? You know, this, these are the questions that C.S. Lewis, by the way, former skeptic, agnostic, atheist, professor at Cambridge University, and Oxford as well, presents this evidence in his book, Mere Christianity. If you've never read the book, it's, it's very thin. You can do it in a matter of three and a half hours. In fact, this is the book that um, when uh, Charles Coulson was imprisoned for the Watergate scandal, this is the book that brought him to a position of faith in Christ through the moral argument, the moral understanding. By the way, it's also the book that Dr. Francis Collins, who I referenced early on in the Human Genome Project, this is the book that he says was the first time that he had ever witnessed 
that he had ever considered that one could arrive at faith based on rational thought. And he read it simply because a friend gave it to him and said, I'd like to get your understanding of this. If you've never read it, three and a half hours, well invested, you want to expand your mind, you want to enlarge your understanding, you want to understand the argument a little bit better, even if it's just to try to contradict it, then I would invite you to get a copy of Mere Christianity and engage the conversation. That's what we do. The witnesses are on the stand, and now it's time to consider. And then uh, the fourth witness we would call is religious experience. And in this, we hear the voices of millions and billions of people across time and in the world today who personally claim not only does God exist, but they regularly have a sense of God's presence, that they can point to things in their life that they say are experiences of God's grace, that they, that they see prayers being answered and strength being given to endure and overcome some of the most destructive habits that humans have to face, that they get glimpses of his will for decisions in their lives. And uh, these people are not deluded. I mean, they're sane, normal people just like you, college edu educated, some have graduate level degrees, and they are normal who would gladly give testimony to that fact in our world and in this room right now. Hook us up to a, to a lie detector, polygraph test, anything else to declare the experience that what we perceive to be real is actually real in our experience. The Bible claims that same thing. Not only does God exist, but God makes himself known in ways that you can really experience in your personal life. And he actually seeks people to seek him. This is what Jesus taught, that God is seeking people to know him in that way. And when we seek him, you'll discover he's seeking you. And then out of that comes this calling, this experience to say, hmm. And so then the question becomes this, why? <laughs> why does that happen? And when it happens, what do I do when I feel like it's happening to me? Do I step into the evidence and say, is there more? Should I pay closer attention? Or do I immediately close the door, close my eyes, and then turn the other way? This is something the Bible also talks about. One time I was visiting with a man, professed atheist. This was early in my ministry in Texas. And uh, he told me that he believed there was no such thing as God. No God. No God. So I asked him something that I'd been learning. God doesn't exist. I asked him, what percentage of total knowledge would you say that you personally possess? I mean, in, in the sphere of all that can be known, what percentage do you personally know? 50%, 30%, 10%. I think I had read somewhere that maybe Einstein said 5%, you know, would be his answer to the question. And uh, Marvin told me at that time he thought maybe 0.5% would be the, of knowable reality that he personally thinks he's aware of. And so then the question became, well, Marvin, in the 99.5% of knowable reality that you just said you have no understanding of yet, is it reasonable to conclude that maybe God could exist in the 99.5%, but you just haven't experienced God yet in that way? And he said, well, I guess. So see, what he was just telling me is that intellectually he's not an atheist, he's an agnostic. And Agnostic says, no, God can't exist. 
And I mean, an atheist says God can't exist, and an agnostic says, well, he, he could. So then I said, well, I said that to him, and, and, and I said, but I've also heard that there are two kinds of agnostics. There's honorary agnostics, and there are honest agnostics. I'm wondering what kind you are. And he said, well, what is that? And I said, well, an honorary agnostic is an agnostic who says, I don't know, you don't know, nobody can know for sure, which sounds like quite a statement of faith to me. How do you know is what I wanted to ask. How would you know that? If somebody says God can't be known, you don't know him, I don't know him, and God cannot be known, how do you know that? That there would never be a time in the 99.5% of knowledge that you say you don't personally possess that God could reveal God's self in such a way to be known if God wanted to. How do you know that? Of course, he said that's not. So the honest agnostic is one that's intellectually honest enough to say, I don't know in my limited sphere of knowledge, but maybe God could be known in what I have not yet experienced. And in the pursuit of intellectual honesty, if God could be known, then I wouldn't mind knowing that fact. That's an honest agnostic. I just don't know. But he doesn't make a judgment on what anybody else can know. So Marvin said probably he was an agnostic, an honest agnostic. He really thought that maybe God could exist and could even be known to exist. He just didn't know it yet in his experience. And then I said, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Did you know that? That God does exist and can be known to exist. Not only intellectually can you know the fact, but personally, Jesus taught that you can know God as Father, Heavenly Father. And he interrupted me. He said, I don't want a father. So now we're at the heart of the situation. It wasn't that there was no God. It was that Marvin didn't want a God as his father. And there's a big difference, wouldn't you say? Simply because you don't want God doesn't mean that God doesn't exist, <laughs> that God isn't real, and that God couldn't reveal himself to you if you seek him, which is what Jesus taught, that God is seeking those who, when they seek him, they can find. And Acts 17 says he's not far from any of us. He wants us to seek him and to reach out and to find him. Now, this last Christmas, a friend gave me a book. The title is When God Winks at You. And it's a book of stories of coincidences and uh, how God speaks directly to people through coincidences. This was the take. And then gave several stories. One of the first ones in the book is, by, is about Mavis Jackson, who for 20 years drove past that cathedral, crystal, crystal cathedral church in California. 20 years. She just drove past the crystal cathedral, always telling herself, you know, someday I'm going to go there. And finally, after 20 years, one day she did. She got there early. She got into their seat, you know, sat in the middle. She watched the 3,000-seat auditorium fill up with people. And then she, like, marveled when they opened those big old glass doors and let the sun and sky in, you know, and then the, was inspired by the music and the talk that was given that day. And at the end of the service, she stood there just waiting for the aisle to clear, trying not to sound too excited, but she did turn to the young woman that was sitting beside her throughout the service and simply said, um, I'm so glad I came today. Wasn't that wonderful? And the young woman nodded, and Mavis asked, 
are, are you from here? She said, no, I'm from the Midwest. I'm actually on a mission to find my birth mother. And Mavis said, oh, I know how you must feel a long time ago. I had to give up a little girl for adoption. I didn't want to do it. And then there was this pause. And the young woman said, uh, do you remember her birthday? Yes, Mavis said, October 30th. The young woman gasped, that's my birthday. And uh, as they talked further, Cheryl Wallace explained that for years she had been haunted to know she wanted to know her birth mother. She'd been haunted by not knowing her birth mother and why she'd been given up. And she said that people in her Midwest town had said, man, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. But someone had remembered that they had heard that maybe her mother had moved to Orange County, California. So Cheryl went out there looking. What are the odds that on that particular day, after years, they would both go to church and sit right beside each other only to discover the miracle that God had for them as mother and daughter? A Mother's Day was never the same for either of them again. Here's the question. If God has a miracle for you, would you be open to it? If, if you don't believe in him, would you be willing to let God believe enough in you to offer hints along your journey and surprises that could open your understanding a little bit more? Because this is the big surprise of the Bible. God exists. Surprise. And God exists out of care for you. And he has given us evidences that can be put to the test in what we call reality, in, what, in the way math works so well to define nature, in how everything is so precisely tuned to make human life possible, how well-ordered and designed it all is to point us to, did this just happen by accident? And this undeniable sense that human beings have about what's right and what's wrong and how we get so emotional about it. All of those evidences to consider when you ask yourself, why? Where did that come from? How does it work? And what is my response to it? So what could be your next step today? Well, we're encouraging the conversation to continue. So you could connect in an Explore God group and then bring your own ideas and talk it out in a circle. If you haven't done that yet, I hope you will. Visit with one of our pastors. Visit with Pastor Desi after service. Get connected in an Explore God group. If you say, oh, I'm, Bill, I'm already, I got my own evidences. I've seen answered prayer. I know what those feelings you're talking about. I know, I've seen it. I know it. Okay, then would you consider sharing your story in a way that somebody who hasn't yet could consider it? Maybe even use the questions to create the conversation that I shared here, that you could do that with somebody in your life this week. Or maybe you could even pick up a few copies of Mere Christianity and invite somebody to consider some things that we're talking about in the next five weeks right here at church that you don't know if they've ever thought about them, but I bet you they have, and here's a little book that's helped you, and would they read it and tell you what they think about it? That might be something that you can do as you're saying, I'm a person of faith, but it's not just about you, is it? No, it's about sharing it. It's about shining the light. That's what we're doing to help every one of us explore God. And what about you? If this is, you're saying, you know, I never heard anything like that, what I just heard today. This is my first time. Maybe you've been doing drive-bys for 20 years. This is your first time. Why did it happen today? I'm not sure. But God knows. And if you ask him, 
He might help you know too. Why today? Why these questions? And what's your response? Maybe it's because today is your day and God wants to give you a miracle that you don't even know exists. But if you sought him, then he would find you. And it could all begin. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the way you make yourself known when we seek you, only to discover that you've been seeking us too. So I'm praying for people here today, people that are within the sound of my voice online, through social media, in our campuses, physically, those who are, who are listening from a distance, those who right now are considering perhaps thoughts they haven't had answers to. They've, they've raised the questions, but maybe never had the kind of answers they've heard today. I pray that somewhere in my journey and my experience that you would open a crack of light to help the next step be taken by every person listening. We pray now for our loved ones. We pray for our families, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our parents. We pray for our neighbors. We pray for our business associates. We pray for our country, for our leaders. We pray for our world, the world that you so love, that you came in history and gave us evidence to counter our doubt and compel trust if we will seek you. And I'm praying especially for someone here today, Lord, that this is their day, this is their moment. And friend, if that's you, you say, well, I don't know if it's me then ask God, is this my day? And the first prayer you could pray would be, God, if you're real, show me. And then a good follow-up prayer is, Lord, I'm turning from doing life without you to trusting and learning how to experience you. Lead me. Jesus, Forgive my sins, come into my heart, and lead me to experience all that you have. Now, if you prayed that last prayer with me and would let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith, would you simply raise your hand, hold it up just for a moment. Wherever you're connecting, there's way online and social that you can let us know. Pastors are watching at Kindle as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, for every person who by hand raised is saying, there's room in my heart, room in my mind to experience new truth. And God, if you're willing to make yourself known, I would love to know. So we pray now that according to your promise that as we ask, we receive, and when we seek, we find that each one would experience you in a fresh and personal way as a result of the prayer of their faith today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed the content you saw today, I want to invite you to subscribe, comment, like, and even share it with someone you know. And if you'd like to connect with us a little bit further, I'm leaving our link to the website in the description below. You can connect with us there, find out a location, maybe we're right near you, and find out any upcoming events that we might have. See you soon.